Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. There's an interesting story coming out of the small town of Green Bank, West Virginia, where Wi-Fi is illegal. It's home to the Green Bank Observatory, a crucial facility in the field of radio astronomy. The observatory detects signals from space that are so faint that any radio interference can throw off readings. Therefore, any radio frequency interference that could interrupt their research has been deemed illegal. For more on the story, we spoke to Matt Blitz, reporter at Popular Mechanics, for how this town operates in 2019. Wi-Fi itself is technically not illegal. The interference it causes is. So it's like a very small distinction. You can have Wi-Fi, but if it's not interfering with the telescope, it's not illegal. Right. However, basically all Wi-Fi does <laughs> if you have it on. <laughs> so therefore, what it causes is illegal. So tell us about Green um, Bank and why this observatory is so right. important and then why they had to kind of set these laws in place for this interference. So Green Bank Observatory is home to the world's most sensitive radio telescope. Of course, there's other radio telescopes across the world, one in China, one in Puerto Rico. But this one has been around since the 1950s, in mid-1950s. And it is the most sensitive one in the world. And they do tons of really important research. One of their slogans or log lines is, the universe is calling to us, so we better listen. And that's exactly what they're doing. They're listening to the universe. They're finding everything from gravitational waves, massive neutron stars, Pulsars, and they're also, they've been doing this since the 1950s, actually early 1960s. They're listening for extraterrestrial intelligence, SETI research. And so they are listening, if there's ever a signal coming down from some sort of intelligent life out there, potentially the telescope, the Green Bank Observatory will be the first to hear it. And for this observatory to operate normally, as you said, it's so sensitive, there had to have been a lot of compromises made. So anything that's man-made radio frequencies can completely yeah. overwhelm these signals that they're trying to get from space. Back in the 50s and the 60s, they passed a bunch of laws to kind of establish a radio quiet zones. Yes, they passed the radio quiet zone, which is about 13,000 acres that goes all the way up to about Charlottesville and all the way down in other parts of West Virginia. And then closer to Green Bay Observatory, is about a 10-mile radius of even stricter laws. But when they passed these laws, first in 1956 and 1958, a lot different time than we are in 2019, right? Exactly. Uh, the things that will tend to interfere are, are radio stations, television signals, uh, ham radios, people's private ham radios. But now in 2019, there's a lot more that can interfere with it, from Wi-Fi to cell service to Bluetooth. And actually, Bluetooth is the one thing that is really, really, really hard to regulate at this point, because many appliances we have in our houses have Bluetooth at this point. And that's what I think I found so fascinating, that of course, you could not have cell phone towers, so you wouldn't have cell service. Wi-Fi, you can tell people not to have Wi-Fi. But Bluetooth, from refrigerators to dehumidifiers, they just have them installed, pre-installed. Right. That's a real issue for the observatory in this radio telescope. And that's the big question, really. Is it even possible <laughs> to keep any of this technology out of this remote town there? I think in the article, there's a person who's kind of specifically assigned to looking right. out for these uh, radio interference waves. And I think they pinpointed one, and it was causing a problem and it was the Bluetooth to a dehumidifier, as you mentioned. So it's right. like, how in the hell are you ever going to really realize that it, this one dehumidifier is causing all that problem? 
that's the issue. I mean, he can detect hotspots, but really trying to pinpoint what exactly is causing the interference. By the way, RFI is actually the acronym, so Radio Frequency Interference. It actually shows up on the data that they collect. So if they point the telescope up into the sky, they're doing a project being looking for a pulsar, they can get little blips, which is radio frequency interference. And those little blips are coming from surrounding areas. Um, like I said, be Wi-Fi signal, Bluetooth, cell, whatever. And yeah, so like these appliances that have Bluetooth, it's really, really hard. And so the observatory, instead of trying to regulate or simply not have it in the town, they realize that's a really a near impossibility at this point. So they're trying to find other ways to basically strip the human-made signals from what they're getting from the universe. And they're working on that, trying to take that data out and separate the two. So what is life like in this little town there? It's rural. I live in Arlington, Virginia, so going three or four hours west, so it's a pretty typical rural town except for the fact that there's no cell service and no Wi-Fi. <laughs> and so for these students who go to school, they have computer labs, they're able to use the internet. But I did speak to the principal and one of their teachers, and they said nearly all the kids at home have Wi-Fi. It's because, frankly, there's very little way for the observatory to, A, detect it, and B, they don't have any um, way to enforce it. And they can tell the population, the students, the kids, everyone, please don't have Wi-Fi, but frankly, there's no way to enforce it because it lies at the feet of the prosecuting attorney of the county, and they don't want to be that strict. They'd rather work with the community than shut it down. Matt Blitz, reporter at Poplar Mechanics, thank you very much for joining us. Sure, thank you for having me. An interesting story filed under the I can't believe they're doing this category. While SCDs are at an all-time high, a new study is showing that people are trying to crowd-diagnose what they have by asking people on Reddit. People enjoy the anonymity and the speed of the internet, but doctors worry that a misdiagnosis could lead to ineffective treatments and further spread of a disease. For more on this, we spoke to Julia Naftalin, health reporter at Insider. So this study just came out in the Journal of of the American Medical Association, and the doctors who conducted the study were looking at the message board STD on Reddit. And they basically tracked all of the messages that were sent from November 2010 when Reddit launched through February 2019. And they found that starting in in November 2018, the number of messages on the board started to double. And 58% of the people who were posting on that board were explicitly requesting other people who were members to help diagnose their STDs. And it's, it, yeah, it's pretty wild. <laughs> yeah. And then 30% of that 58% even posted pictures of their symptoms to help along with the process of diagnosing. So uh, yeah. a little <laughs> a little gross, a little unsettling. But part of the study was is that people oftentimes, they like the anonymity of it. They'll get a quick response. I think on average, people would get a response within three hours. So it's a fairly quick turnaround. That is also something that worried doctors because... A lot of people are pointing to, you know, what are we doing wrong that people would rather go online to get these diagnoses? Right. The doctors who did the study did point that out, that, you know, there's a lot of shame and stigma that can come with having an STD. So a lot of the times people might be thinking, oh, it's easier for me and less embarrassing to just do this behind a screen. And then there's also this idea that taking a picture or writing a message on Reddit takes a fraction of the time it takes to call a doctor, book a doctor's appointment, which doesn't mean it's better, but that's just what these researchers believe are some of the reasons why people are trying to take care of themselves this way. 
So people are going to the site to get these diagnoses without ever going to the doctor. And this was what I thought kind of was a little interesting, also a little perplexing, that they would go to a doctor, but apparently not satisfied with what they were told there. I would think the doctor would be the authority on it. Why would people want to go back there? One From one of these other articles that I found, they quoted somebody and they're saying, my results showed HIV-1 confirmation. I think my doctor might be wrong. Do you think I have this? You know, it's like if your doctor is telling you you're you're ill with something, that that's who you should be trusting. Why would you continue to go online? Yeah, it's unfortunate. I think it's, like I said, a mixture of the shame of, of having an STD, especially HIV. Like there's a lot of stigma, unfortunately, around that when there shouldn't be. So I could see someone being like, well, that, that can't be me. I'm not a person with yeah. HIV you know, taking it into my own hands. And then also just there's the current state is a lot of people just don't trust their doctors. There's a big mistrust. So they might just be falling into that um, disbelief for that reason. What's the takeaway from this for doctors? It seems that they feel like they might need to approach this in a different way. They say they might want to go to Reddit and maybe try to get an awareness campaign going instead. The researchers kind of said that even though this is alarming, this could be used for good if Reddit and other social media platforms work to stop the spread of misinformation and kind of use it as an educational tool for doctors, basically, of like, these are the STDs people are writing about most or the symptoms people want to know more about. And then that way they can provide better resources for their patients so that they won't feel like their only option is to get a crowd diagnosis on a social media platform. Julia Naftalin, health reporter at Insider. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. Finally for this week, transgender athletes are having a moment and at all levels of sport, they're stepping onto the podium, winning medals and setting records. But as more transgender athletes are winning competitions, opponents are saying that they are ruining sports for cisgendered girls and women. Some ideas floated around to address this situation might be to create multiple divisions or extra categories for athletes to compete in. Christy Ashwanden, contributor to Wired, joins us for more on how these trans athletes are shaking up sports. A couple of things. I think the first thing is that we're sort of at a moment in our culture where transgender people are sort of coming into the limelight. This has been in the news. There have been some high profile legislative things, thinking of the bathroom bills that were in the news for a while, although most of those did not go through. These were bills that would basically restrict people to using the bathroom that matches the gender that was on their birth certificate. But there's also sort of more of an awareness that trans people exist. They've always existed, but they've been sort of given a little bit more. We've had some people like Caitlyn Jenner, who've been very high profile people coming out and they're sort of more in the limelight, I guess I would say. So that's the background sort of on the social side and sort of society level side. But at the same time, we have some transgender athletes who are competing. And it turns out while writing the story, I actually spoke with a woman who worked on the NCAA's transgender handbook. And she told me that under her estimates, there's probably something like 150 to 200 transgender athletes who are participating in NCAA sports right now. But the reason that we don't hear about most of them is that for the most part, they're not controversial, where it really becomes something that, you know, is making news is when these athletes are winning races and earning medals and things like that. So that's really sort of where the controversy lies, where you have these transgender athletes who are either breaking records or standing on the podium. And then there are people who are saying, well, that's taking away from a cisgender athlete who would have otherwise been there. And one of the big controversies in Connecticut, there's a conservative Christian group called the Alliance Defense 
defending freedom. They are suing on behalf of three high school athletes where there was some transgender athletes who basically between two of them won 15 different state championship titles. So on this one, it kind of skewed heavily that way. But this is kind of one of those big controversies that pops up from it. And as you mentioned, in the NCAA, there's really not that many transgender athletes, but these are the ones that garner the headlines when something like this happens and when there's lawsuits and things like that. Transgender people are a very small proportion of our population. I mean, we're talking single digits of the overall population. And traditionally, you know, they've been a very repressed minority. The idea that people are changing genders in order to get an athletic advantage is just sort of ludicrous if you look at sort of what these people are going through. In more than a dozen states, athletes are allowed to participate in their gender identity. So that means if I say I'm a girl, I'm a girl, that's the standard. And in many cases, it's not just a matter of saying the thing. I mean, the school will sort of make a determination that you are living in that identity and you know, calling yourself that identity and all of this. But what's happened in Connecticut is that we have several transgender girls who are doing quite well. This is in track and field. And so there are people that are saying this just isn't fair. You know, one season they're on the boys team, the next season they're on the girls girls team. And there's a sense that this is an unfair advantage that they're having. And at the high school level here, this is very complex stuff, but there are no rules in these cases of saying, you know, that you have to have some sort of hormonal therapy or something like this. Mm -hmm. So the concern, I think, is that you have someone who basically physically has not changed at all, but the identity has changed. And there's a sense among some people that this is grossly unfair. What about that argument, though, uh, the testosterone and the physical advantages that some of these transgender athletes might have? And we're talking about specifically right now in the female sports category. There are certain things that do give them a physical advantage. And what about those people say that that's unfair? The reason that we have female categories for sports is that overall, in general, males outperform females. Now, this isn't true across the board. The best women can outperform most men. But if you were looking at, say, world records, about 10% is the difference that you see across sports. Now, it varies a little bit. In ultra and distance events, the performances are a little bit closer. So it's not always the case. But in general, there is this gap. And so, for instance, in high school sports, it's very regular. There are at least hundreds of high school boys who break the women's world record in track and field events every year. So this difference is pretty large at that level. So the concern here is that a lot of this stuff comes from testosterone, although it's not entirely testosterone. But overall, men tend to have bigger bone structures structure, greater lung capacity, larger hearts. So they have various physical advantages. And some of these don't go away when someone transitions to become female, whether they're doing hormone therapy or other things, some of these advantages are going to remain. So what are the things that they're trying to work on to either help with this level the playing field, however you want to put it? I mean, there's a lot of different options, not all of them seem the best. I think one of them, instead of having two divisions, a male and a female, there could be multiple divisions and athletes can be placed in that. But some transgender athletes wouldn't want to be put in one of these other categories. They want to compete in these main categories. I think the goal here for many of us is to balance inclusiveness and to be inclusive, particularly to this group of transgender athletes who just want to participate like anyone else. And sport can be such a healthy thing for them to do. But you want to balance that with fairness. And it's a tricky thing to do. I don't think that there are easy answers here at all. One of the things that's been proposed, which I think is an interesting idea, is to use some sort of algorithm and sort of have a grading sort of, this is done in Paralympics. So you have people competing with various, um, you know, missing an arm or leg or having various things like this. And they, they use these 
formulas to sort of just determine who's competing against who. And so this may be viable on paper. In practicality, though, I think it would be really difficult to pull off. There'd be a lot of very tough decisions. But the other problem is, you know, at the end of the day, we want to be able to do this in a way that is not increasing stigma towards transgender people. Transgender people, particularly young people, have very high rates of depression, suicide, things like this. And one of the issues is that so much of what they're going through is feeling not at home in their bodies. And sport is something that can help them feel at ease and at home in their bodies and taking part in a sport where they're on a team where they belong. I mean, so many of these transgender athletes are really competing on teams where they're being welcomed, they're not being stigmatized, and it gives them an opportunity to feel like they belong. And so I think that we shouldn't discount the things that sport can do for transgender athletes. What kind of rules do we have on the books now? The NCAA has a few rules. The International Olympic Committee also has a few rules. I know maybe on the high school level, it might be a little different, but at least there are some type of parameters set so far for transgender athletes. For male to female transgender athletes in the NCAA, they have to have been doing testosterone suppression therapy for at least a year, but there aren't any rules on what those limits of testosterone can be. Now, in the IOC, at the current time, the rule is 10 nanomoles per liter for a minimum of 12 months. So that's the upper limit that a transgender person can have and compete in the female category. There's been a push to actually lower that to five nanomoles. So cisgender men typically have something between like seven to 30 animals per liter. So wide range there, whereas cis women generally top out at just below two, although there's some variability there too. But this gets to a really important issue, and that is that there's a lot of variability. And one of the reasons that we like sport and one of the things that sport gives us is a chance to celebrate human excellence. And there are women who are outstanding performers. There are women who have naturally high testosterone levels. There are women who are naturally quite strong. And so at some point, we're sort of almost defining the upper limit of how outstanding or how athletically gifted a woman can be. And I think that's where things get really tricky. You spoke to Joanna Harper. She's a transgender distance runner and researcher who served on the IOC committee that developed the current rules right now. And the way she put it was it boils down to who you're trying to be fair to typical women who can't compete with men at high levels of sport or these minority transgender people who just kind of want to enjoy the same things that everybody else does. And it is such a difficult situation to kind of navigate. Those two objectives are sort of, you know, in competition with one another. I don't see a satisfying answer that will sort of achieve both of those things in a satisfying way. I mean, on the one hand, there are a lot of levels at which you know, most sport is not done at the elite level. And I think there are many, many opportunities and avenues and sort of venues where trans athletes might participate without people feeling like it's somehow threatening the sport. And Joanna Harper sort of made the point that she felt like for recreational athletes, this shouldn't really be a big problem or something that people are concerned about too much. But at the same time, she told me that she was uncomfortable with, say, high school transgender runners taking those podium spots at, say, the state meet, winning over athletic scholarships and things like that. But where do you decide to draw those lines? Christy Ashwanden, columnist at Wired and author of Good to Go, What the Athlete and All of Us Can Learn from the Strange Science of Recovery. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow the Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. 
This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. Thank you.